1: We're all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Welcome to the show, everybody. By the way, this is episode 85 of the program. Uh, Thank you for everybody. Yeah, woohoo indeed. Thanks for everybody for uh, sticking around here with us. We are on... I feel like we're on the final run here to 100, which is pretty exciting. So mm-hmm. we're just going to keep on plugging away, but just wanted to just acknowledge that and thank everybody for coming along on the ride. Some of you since the beginning. So thanks so much. Yeah. Speaking uh. of being on, uh, you know, a line and moving ahead, uh, have either of you ever tried to walk in a straight line in the woods?
2: Yes. Yes. I've had to do like transects. How, how'd that, for, uh, how'd mm-hmm. that go for you? Not well. It's surprisingly difficult, <laughs> um, right? Right. Yeah, that's not. It's not easy. Generally speaking, there's a tree in the way. Uh, yeah, almost always. Yeah. Or a shrub. In uh, my so, experience, uh, mountain laurel. My oh, shrubs way. are yeah, particularly yeah. problematic. Uh, I generally get like thorny bushes, which isn't great, like raspberry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tasty well, but what, painful. What happens
1: is you, you you walk around, like you walk around a few trees, you step over a few logs, maybe you have to hop over a stream, or like you said, you find a patch of thorny stuff and you go around it, and you think you're back on the same line, but you almost never are, mm-hmm. right? Maybe, or maybe your attention wanders when you spot an animal or a flower or something like that. Yeah, and it really is true that people will literally walk in circles instead of straight lines when they don't have the right visual cues to keep them going straight. Yes. Um there right. were some interesting experiments done. Oddly enough, um the the <laughs> the, the exact uh, experiments I could find uh, references to were done by a German science TV show. Uh, <laughs> okay. Sort Kopfball. of like Mythbusters Kopf. Germany. Very much so. Uh, but it's Beautiful. called Kopfball. Kopfball. Um Kopfball and it's but, but Kopfball which means like headball. Yeah. Uh, apparently. That's what it means. Um so It's a show that, like, answers viewers' science questions, so not necessarily busting myths like Mythbusters, but, like, trying to get to the bottom and, like, do experiments to figure things out, which Mm -hmm. is pretty cool. So, um, they blindfolded people, and, of course, they filmed them while they were doing all this, but they put them on, like, a big open soccer field and then said, just walk in a straight line, and then they would kind of watch what happened, Mm -hmm. and... Pretty much nobody went in a straight line, I think. Uh, some of them went in circles as small as 20 meters. Wow. Just around <laughs> and around in a 20-meter circle, thinking they were just like, how come I haven't reached the end zone yet? Um, so pretty wild. Now, when they took blindfolds off, of course, everyone could just walk a straight line down a soccer field. That would be really easy. Mm-hmm. You could literally just walk down a, a painted sideline or, or walk toward a landmark like like the goal. Um, but then they tried the same thing in the forest. And this time... <laughs> They were merciful that let people walk unblindfolded. Oh, good! In the I was about to be like a, be. They
2: blindfolded them and put them in the woods. Kind of a disaster. Immediate <laughs> right. struck tree.
1: So they wanted to look at like a, a longer distance, though. So they were able to track people with GPS and find out exactly where they went over long distances. They wanted to see what would happen, mm-hmm. and it turns out um, how well the people did actually had to do with how cloudy it was. And it turns out like if we can keep an eye on the sun, we naturally go pretty, pretty straight in the woods without really even realizing that we're queuing off the sun. Um, But when they did this experiment in cloudy days, people went far less straight and they just kind of wandered around the woods. Some people actually, again, going in circles. So Hmm. it's kind of cool that like I don't think we think about. The fact that we're necessarily following the sun, but it's an it's a subconscious kind of thing that yeah. humans are capable of doing. Yeah, and I've talked about migration, migration and navigation a few times on this show because mm-hmm. I think it's a really fascinating and weird topic. Animals like can travel long distances without getting lost, and I think we really can't imagine doing that ourselves often. So it becomes yeah. kind of like a mystery or a wonder to us. It was literally well, it was two weeks ago on the show. Rachel's topic was. About at least partially about the completely bonkers monarch migration, oh, right? Yeah. So, th- the strangest part of your topic, Rachel, was like sort of the mystery of how did they get somewhere they'd never been, mm-hmm. but also we don- we didn't really even talk about how on earth they would navigate their way there. Yeah even if they knew where they were going, which they don't. So yeah, just animal navigation is, is pretty wild. And this week, an article caught my attention. It wasn't about migration per se, but more about, again, animal navigation. Mm-hmm. And it features a strange animal that amazingly, somehow we have not talked about on this show. Mm-hmm. The story was about the dung beetle.
2: How have we not talked about
1: poop? How, how have, I, I have how had have we not talked beetles about on that? my
0: list. For a while. Okay,
1: well, yeah, you can maybe keep it. them on there because I'm, okay. I'm. This is a very specialized part of the topic okay. there. Um You might ask, why do dung beetles even really have to navigate? Like, what's going on? Well,
2: some might. It isn't just to find they have dung. To, like, roll the thing back to their house, their their hovel home. Yeah, home. I mean,
1: they don't say have like a specific house. What they're doing is like, like you're sort of hinted at. This navigation starts after they've already found a big old pile of dung, mm-hmm. uh, and for a dung beetle. Uh, dung is life, or which we should True. t-shirts. Dung is, dung is life. Oh, my God. Um, animal droppings are their food source. Uh, male dung beetles will find a fresh pile and create a ball out of it. I'm sure Rachel's going to post a photo to our social media. accounts. I, these I balls am. are yeah. comically, comically large compared yeah. to their bodies. Beautiful. Uh, and they make this ball because they need to roll the dung away. And what rolls better than a ball? Mm-hmm. Uh, And when you have a fresh pile of dung, literally thousands of beetles could show up. And there is a fierce competition for the resources. And the beetles want to roll out of there as fast as possible before someone actually steals all their hard work and just takes their dung ball. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) The ball, along with uh, some help from the female, uh, is then buried with with eggs from that female. And the the dung ball that's been buried becomes food for their young. And this would have not occurred to me, but the ability to roll the ball in a straight line is incredibly important and difficult I I would think yeah and difficult yeah I mean obviously they're gonna have to go around obstacles like we'd have to go around trees Mm -hmm. but they generally want to make sure they're going in this in 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 one specific direction um so if the beetle is like our hikers on a cloudy day Mm -hmm. they might end up rolling their ball in a circle and then pushing it right back to the dung pile Ooh. where thousands of other beetles ah. are waiting to steal it. Right. Or well, yeah. maybe even just hundreds. But like there's other there's beetles there that don't want to run into, right? Yeah. So going in a straight line away from the pile is super important to success. And as you can imagine, being so small, landmarks are pretty tough to come by. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah, scientists it knew that dung beetles... <laughs> At that
2: level. Right.
1: It's like, was that, is that the blade of grass I already saw? Or like, what was this? You know? Mm-hmm. So uh, scientists had previously known that dung beetles can see polarized light. And so oh. they can actually navigate uh, by the sun. Cool. Uh, but what about at night? Mm-hmm. Because there are some species of dung beetles that are nocturnal. Oh. And famously, you may know this, the sun is not out at night. Wait, what? what? Yeah. Groundbreaking. I know. Whole, <laughs> Stop the presses. It's uh, like. Everyone Oof. needs to Let's know That's the definition of night. So. Likely, I'm guessing taking a cue from some bird research that I talked about earlier on the show, where they took indigo
2: buntings—those
1: mm-hmm. are birds, if you didn't know—they uh, took indigo buntings into a planetarium. Oh, I love that story. These researchers did the same. Yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, they did the same thing. But with, dung, with beetles? dung beetles, they took dung beetles inside the Johannesburg planetarium. Which can you imagine that conversation with the <laughs> planetarium owners? Yeah. I want to I do a, an experiment in your planetarium. Oh yeah, cool. What do you want to do? I want to bring dung beetles. <laughs> i only need like
2: a little part of it i don't need a long uh, come again i don't need a big part but uh (laughs) right oh gosh
1: (laughs) well they basically you're right they just basically set up a table so they were on this this table and then they turned on the planetarium and it turns out when the dung beetles could see the night sky or what they thought was a night sky Mm -hmm. they walked in a straight line whoa and when they would it off basically um they couldn't see the night sky they just sort of wandered around on the table aimlessly and they went in circles and stuff and didn't know what to do okay but the researchers wanted to know okay so great so they're they're queuing off the sky but what specifically are they looking at right and they have now just announced that they discovered a first in the animal kingdom Ooh. the researchers showed, showed that the dung beetles navigated equally well When they could see just the milky way as when they could see the whole sky what so the scientists actually believe that nocturnal dung beetles actually use the milky way which is that bright Uh you know stripe of stars uh, through the sky in very dark areas um to help them navigate at night and we've never shown that for any other animals that they are specifically using the milky way to help them navigate I'm going to go ahead and guess there's probably many other animals that actually do uh-huh. use specifically the Milky sure. Way, but no one's been able, ever, ever able to prove that, which Whoa. I think is very cool. That is very so cool. That's next time, so cool. Next time you think about dung beetles like rolling their dung balls across the savannah at night, be sure to picture them gazing up at the beauty of the Milky Way. I will now. Uh, so that's that's what I got for you guys. I feel guys. like the somebody dung should beetles.
0: create a comic about this.
2: Ooh,
1: uh yes. yeah it does feel like that is that is due. Uh my sources this week by the way were National Geographic and Science and that's the magazine Science not just science in general <laughs> though, you know. Yay, science. Is, I mean science also science in general, science in well.
2: general but
1: <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly.
2: <laughs> cool.
1: Well, we're going to uh we're going to go to a break. Uh we got a little uh little uh, info here about another podcast maybe you guys might want to check out and when we come back it will be Rachel.
2: Rachel. Yes. Yeah. It'll be you. Oh, well, fabulous. I, have something I said it fun. was a
1: question mark. because I couldn't remember who was coming next. <laughs> It'll be Rachel.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right.
3: <laughs> I'm Edward October. There's only one way to serve a fine bourbon, poured neat and slowly savored. The retro horror stories served by October pod are just as refined as an aged bourbon, but now there are two ways to enjoy them. Subscribe to OctoberPod home video on YouTube. There we debut our latest true, true-ish, and or classic tales of horror and the paranormal on the first and third Tuesday of each month. And now you can pour yourself a double serving of October Pod. Find October Pod After Midnight, <laughs> that's October Pod AM for short on your favorite podcast app there on the second and fourth Tuesday of the month we serve up tall glasses of our most horrifying spirits specially curated for you to savor each episode of October Pod AM lasts about an hour just long enough to sip a good scotch by the fire now there are two ways to enjoy retro horror thrills of impeccable taste Find all our links at com. OctoberPod. Retro horror for bold individualists.
2: All right. So, hilariously, your topic actually leads a little bit into mine uh, this week. Oh,
0: does it? I'm now wondering... <laughs> Well, you go. You go ahead, Rachel. Yeah, I might have to switch things up a little bit just to keep a theme going. You go. You go ahead. Okay.
2: So, because, like Kirk just was talking about, sometimes science does weird experience experiments, um, in order to Mm -hmm. find out the answers to a question, and you develop those ways in unique and novel ways sometimes uh, in order to test and experiment and right. get get an answer to your question. Um I want to talk about one that was actually sent to me by a listener of the show and one of my really good friends Amanda. So, hi Amanda first shout out Thank you Amanda. <laughs> Thanks Amanda. Um but first uh how Well, I
1: suppose you know, we shouldn't thank her yet Victoria because we don't really know what that <laughs> yeah,
2: is. Right. Good point. You'll be fine. Um, But okay, good. But first, before I get into it, how would you both test depth perception in in invertebrates? Because we know, like vertebrate species, have depth perception of some sort. I know. Yeah,
1: I know how they test it in babies, Mm, which is really messed up.
0: Um, I know how they tested you know how it in they a 3 year old because we just did that. But well,
1: uh, they've done experiments with like the the table that's like they put like, put little babies on a table and then crawl to the edge. Oh, and yeah, the edge of yeah, the table yeah. is actually like a piece of glass that you can see through. Oh okay. yeah. And like older, I don't know when the age difference is, but older kids will get to the edge and be like see the ground underneath it and be like, "Whoa, I'm gonna fall," mm-hmm. even though they can't because it's glass. Um, and then younger babies will just crawl right off the end of that table onto the glass and have no sense that there's a depth change but is that um, because that they, change happens
0: hmm. is that sorry i didn't mean to interrupt is that because they don't a lack of experience yeah or, lack of experience or lack of depth perception
1: my understanding of it was that it was an actual perception thing okay. hmm. uh, back when i learned that many 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 years ago in like child psychology class but um, I don't remember all the particulars.
0: Huh. Can they put miniature, um, like, three D goggles on insects and show them, like, a magic eye picture? <laughs> little, little
1: oh, VR headset on an yeah. a, a invertebrate.
0: Because that's what they do with three year olds. <laughs> oh, FBI doctor. Well,
2: let's find out. <laughs> um, so in Woods Hole, <laughs> uh, in Massachusetts, I bet Rachel has
1: the answer. I, I do,
2: I do. So in Woods Hole, in Massachusetts. Um, Some really fun experiments went on um, late 2019, early 2020. Well, I mean, the paper was published in early 2020, but um, to test depth perception in cuttlefish. Now, their relatives, octopus and squid, are known not to have something called stereovision, which is what we have as humans as well as um, many vertebrates have. It's where you have two eyes that um, are taking two different images and in your brain they are communicating and creating a, a master image. And the slight differences in distance right. of mm-hmm. objects is um, how it tells your brain how far something is from you and allows you to have depth perception. This is why humans are able to like catch a ball, right. uh... things like that.
1: Yep. It's called p- parallax, right? I mean, that's, that's we use the same technique in astronomy to figure out how far away um, stars and 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 galaxies and stuff are.
2: Yeah, um, so we're gonna we're gonna keep calling it stereo vision just because um, it's easier to pronounce. <laughs> um. So.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Go for it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but to test this, like Victoria kind of hinted at. Researchers figured out a way to put 3D goggles, 3D glasses on 11 (laughs) cuttlefish.
1: What? I I thought you were joking. (laughs) Nope. Maybe Victoria was joking. Victoria was. was,
2: They literally put on 3D glasses on cuttlefish in a new tank. Okay. Outfitted with a small screen that they could project videos of shrimp Um onto that screen and what they would do is they'd actually like with 3d technology what happens with the glasses because they're the red blue glasses the fit the photos are beautiful Uh um it's actually two images and you see them um on either side of the glass of the glasses is to slightly miss um the image itself is two yeah. images of misaligned. shrimp, and they're slightly misaligned, so that way it gives them depth when it combines in your brain. Um, so they did mm-hmm. this with yeah, yeah, shrimp. Yeah. and But obviously there were some issues that they had to come up, up with solutions for, like how do you make sure that the glasses don't fall off and that the cuttlefish don't like tear them <laughs> off of them. <laughs> right as well as like you couldn't they discovered that they couldn't have them like bend backwards like wrap around because if they did that the um uh if the cuttlefish swam backwards it would they would fill with water and like fall off which (laughs) is interesting uh, so... Well, and a
1: cuttlefish is, is, is soft-bodied. So yeah, So, like, it is. you can't put it on and just, like, like you know, Mm-mm. wrench down that, you know, strap on the back of their head. It's just going to, like,
2: squish them, like... Yep. Uh, oh, that's... Okay. So, their solution... I need to
1: see a photo of this contraption.
2: <laughs> yep. Uh, that'll be on our Instagram. Uh, so, what they did was they used Velcro and attached the... What? The... <laughs> <laughs> Wait, <laughs> hold on. Oh, no. And they attach the do, 3D Did Do they glasses. like glue
1: the Velcro to the
2: cuttlefish? Um, that is a good question. Um, they, they must have. Because um,
1: Velcro doesn't like this. I, last I checked, Velcro doesn't stick to cuttlefish. No,
2: it does not. Uh,
0: do, 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 do. Have you ever tried, Kirk? How do you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm somewhat familiar
1: with the texture <laughs> of like members of that family. Uh, they're not uh, fuzzy, or uh, you know, or 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 you know, they're not. They're, they are neither hook nor loop. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's put it that way.
2: Well, they they didn't exactly say. Um, they did have to like test it and everything, oh. and make sure. I yeah. I they point. they super glued the Velcro yeah. onto the skin. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And if you're wondering, a lot of times people are like, oh my gosh, someone glued a transmitter or something like that to a lot of animals. Mm-hmm. Often as animals shed and whatnot, those things just naturally fall off.
2: Yeah, so it doesn't really like damage them um, right, for right. long and eventually are, it'll fall off. Um, they also discovered, a just a side note, um, they discovered that some individuals in the study would not keep the glasses on their face. So I just think that's funny. <laughs> um,
1: There's some humans like that too. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, So um, with all of this set up, the cuttlefish, uh, they went off and started testing and the cuttlefish consistently struck out and would hit where the shrimp was on a really like consistent, like hitting where the shrimp was where the image was not an actual where where the
1: shrimp appeared to be right okay yeah yeah
2: um wow and in order to control they wanted to make sure that it it was actual stereo vision um one of the superimposed images so the slightly misaligned images um they would make one of them like the color of the glasses like either red or blue and thus that uh shadow would become invisible to that eye uh to one of the lenses and it allowed (laughs) them to only have like one image um and it took a little bit longer but the cuttlefish was able to like strike out and like realign itself so that way it could figure out where the shrimp was because uh the whole thing started because um cuttlefish really enjoy shrimp But in the wild, shrimp are, generally speaking, really, like, translucent and really hard to catch. So you have to be very, like, precise Mm -hmm. in where you strike out if you want a really good snack. Um, Yeah,
1: because they're not like a filter feeder that's just sucking hundreds of them in.
2: Exactly. Um, But the cuttlefish was able to strike out at the shrimp. So, which showed that the cuttlefish um, use stereo vision. Um now I say this. Very cool. I say this, but these cuttlefish were actually the second vertebrate invertebrate to don 3D glasses. Um <laughs> okay. there were there were a couple of researchers in Newcastle uh, uh, yeah, Newcastle University in the United Kingdom uh, who did this with praying mantises mm-hmm. to see if they had stereo vision as well. Oh. And it turns out so do they. Oh wow.
0: Yeah, not too surprising. I mean, considering yeah that they're predators.
1: Now, Rachel, when you're saying like 3D goggles, like we're we're talking like like the the old school red and blue glasses, and then they're showing them an image. They're not like VR goggles, right? Right,
2: they're red blue. Not little glasses. screens in there. Yeah. There. Okay,
1: so they're put, basically putting glasses on them, not like VR. I was picturing yeah. like a VR headset at first. Oh like, no, analog, man, analog, like, red and blue. Got to have like electronics, and like this is mm-hmm. really complicated. But okay, that's a little bit simpler. That's nope, nope. Good to know. Uh,
2: old 3D glasses. <laughs> um. All right. Well, that's what I have for you all today. Uh, my sources were the Smithsonian Magazine and New York Times, as well as the paper. Cuttlefish use stereopsis to strike at prey by Fjord, Sumner, uh, Pesacar, Caltra, Gonzalez, Bolito, and Wardell in advanced sciences. Um, I apologize if I said any of their names wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah. Also, fun little fact is one of the researchers was actually in, uh, from the University of Minnesota. So, oh. hey. Cool.
1: Because of all the, you know, cuttlefish we have here. Oh, yeah, so many. Right. <laughs> Not all right. Really interesting. Okay.
2: Yeah. So, we're going to take a cool. quick break. And when we return, it'll be Victoria.
0: Hey, we're back. My topic this week is actually sort of a combination of two topics or inspired by two topics that I've done previously. There is this whole little subspecialty of biology that is devoted to dealing with things that you can find in the Siberian permafrost. Oh, <laughs> and yeah. Gosh. Right. You, you remember I talked about those uh, woolly mammoths yep. a few episodes back. Uh, most people have heard about the amazingly intact woolly mammoth carcasses that do turn up from time to time. Uh, and there are other large extinct animals whose bodies or more often bones have also been preserved in the, the permafrost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are actually even scientists who are attempting to clone or hybridize the woolly mammoth and bring it back and reintroduce it to Siberia, which is pretty wild. They sure are. I
2: don't know how well that'll go. If yeah, Jurassic Park I think it's has been... anything uh <laughs> has told me anything. I don't know if that's a great idea, but you know.
0: I think they've been remarkably unsuccessful so far. So yeah, it turns out it's
1: <laughs> way harder than people yeah. thought it was
0: gonna be. <laughs> uh yeah. And that, you know, that that's all very fascinating and it really it does fire the imagination. But there are now. Actual individual Pleistocene animals that were frozen thirty thousand years ago or more that have literally been brought back to life, not just like cloned. What? So, mm-hmm. Yeah. So if I feel you
2: remember, like I you
1: saw this, this story. Same story.
0: <laughs> if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, I did my episode about heavy water uh-huh. and how bad mm-hmm. it is for your body. <laughs> yep. Uh you may recall that there was a species of nematode worm that could survive after being almost completely dried out and then rehydrated right. in uh, 99.9% heavy water. Mm-hmm. And uh, we talked about, you know, some species that can survive in that kind of suspended animation um, and hydrobiosis in this case, we are living without water. Oh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. like, including the Woo. tardigrades our adorable microscopic friends. Well, The zombie permafrost animal that I am referring to is, again, a nematode worm. Yay! Okay. Uh, So a group of Russian scientists in 2017 worked with samples from two different locations in far northeastern Siberia um, from the Kolyma River Basin. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the two locations, one was uh, material taken out of an ancient ground squirrel burrow about 30 meters below (laughs) the current surface.
2: Amazing. Um, apparently, oh, okay. these
0: are treasure troves if you want to find uh, old stuff in the permafrost, <laughs> biological cool. material.
3: Ground squirrel. Um, and the
0: site was, yeah, about 32,000 years old. Uh, and it turns out that oh, the actual scientific term for the stuff you find inside a ground squirrel nest is stuff.
2: <laughs> Amazing.
1: I like it. Yes. People yeah. accuse scientists sometimes of using really high fluting language they don't understand. It's refreshing when they're like, we call this stuff.
2: Stuff. <laughs> I love it. So good.
1: Probably stands for something. It's S period, K period, U <laughs> oh, period, <God>. F. Subterranean, underground, <laughs> uh, <laughs> underground, frozen, frozen fluffy, fluff. fecal flora. Frozen. I don't know, something like that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well uh, we, can, we can look that up I don't think so <laughs> anyway uh, the other site was a soil core from the permafrost that was about 3.5 meters down and was estimated at 40,000 years old and the scientists first isolated these nematodes out of these samples and they were able to identify them Um, based on their appearance under the microscope, as well as they did some, like, sort of limited DNA analysis. Okay. And Mm -hmm. um, the burrow nematode is apparently from the genus Panagrolimus, which is the same genus that uh, the heavy water one was. Whoa. Um, Oh,
2: my.
0: Yeah. And the one from the soil core sample was from a different genus, Plectus. But they... They t- tentatively identified them, even down to the species, which are ones that still exist today. And oh, they were wow. able to, th- yeah, able to thaw these little worms out, give them some food, and apparently they began moving and eating, which is
1: oh, man. just
0: amazing.
2: Wow. Um, They're like, I
1: took a long nap. <laughs> yeah. I don't know where I parked my car. Oh
2: my I gosh. don't know what century Talk it
0: is. Rip Van Winkle worms. Oh, Ooh,
1: that's a good name for them.
0: There we go. So these Russian scientists, they have little beards, you know,
1: I guess <laughs> you... <laughs> really long beards, technically not yeah. little beards. Sorry, go on.
0: Um, I mean, do you sort of wonder, like, could there have been contamination with modern worms? Um, that was kind of
1: what I was wondering when you said that they're still extant and around. Yeah. Ooh.
0: Well, I mean, the scientists in the paper outlined the steps they took to prevent contamination of the samples and. The evidence that they've lined up that the that the areas had been continuously frozen and not thawed and so like wouldn't be right, there wasn't like a
1: couple poker chips and Nike Air Jordans <laughs> and some right cigarette butts in the hole because that'd kind of be a giveaway
0: yeah. I mean there still is the possibility of contamination and, and so these results do need um, some confirmation <laughs> and replication the, yeah replication and some, some DNA analysis between the frozen worms and their living modern counterparts to s- presumably there would be genetic drift mm-hmm. in 30 or 40,000 years. So, oh, absolutely. Um, we'll see if all this holds up to scrutiny, but it's pretty amazing, if true, and this yeah. is the first time that an animal or a multicellular organism of any kind has been shown to survive long-term in the permafrost. There have been uh, many other types of organisms that have been revived from permafrost from similar amounts of time. Um, mostly so bacteria, like single celled organisms, bacteria, green algae, mm-hmm. yeasts, slime molds, protozoans, and moss spores have all been found viable. Mm-hmm. So mosses you know, a, a spore is pretty small, but it is a plant obviously, but actually um, right. they have been able to germinate some plant seeds from, either I don't don't know if it was just like a very similar sounding squirrel burrow or perhaps exactly the same (laughs) squirrel burrow because it said like 30 meters down kalima whatever there's just one squirrel (laughs) burrow it Um, has
2: extensive tunnels
0: yeah uh but that they were able to it's good they have the seeds
1: because if you clone the woolly mammoth you could then grow a you know Period appropriate food for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: totally. Well, this was a ah, flowering plant of the carnation family, which uh, is still found in the area. Okay. Um, but yeah, you, you know, at this rate, we could have a whole Pleistocene ecosystem, except for all that pesky climate change that's going to melt everything.
1: Yep. Except for the 90 degree tropical weather in the, you know.
0: Yeah. hmm. <sighs> Well, my, uh, my main source this week was this paper from 2018 called Viable Nematodes from Late Pleistocene Permafrost of the Kalimo River Lowland. Uh, and it was by A.V. Cool. A- a. Shatilovich and colleagues. And it was originally published in Doklady Biological Sciences, which is a, a Russian publication. Cool. Uh, Did you
1: read it in Russian? Or...
0: <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, I just my
0: language skills don't extend that far huh yeah I mean. imagine imagine that hmm. well that's what i have about frozen worms for you this week awesome
2: <laughs> thanks victoria awesome
1: that was quite a trio of topics everybody thanks for uh, uh, coming along for the ride yeah We're on episode 85 woo
0: yeah. yeah all right we'll talk to you next week yeah thanks for listening everyone. next week bye bye bye
1: Thanks everyone for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside,
2: stay curious, and embrace the strange.